0: Well, invariably, we humans, we take simple things and we make them much more complicated than they're supposed to be. This is especially true in our relationship with God. It seems we make coming to God and walking with God and pleasing God far more complex than God intended. The Jews of Jesus' day were the classic culprits. Someone once summed up the American legal code. We have 35 million laws trying to enforce God's Ten Commandments. That's how complicated we we can make things. And this was indicative of Judaism. God's requirements were simple and straightforward, but the rabbis and the Pharisees, they read into the law innuendo and inferences that just weren't there. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus separates Scripture from tradition. He simplifies our relationship with Him. He gets us back to what's truly significant and eternally important. We begin in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of His disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now understand, these Jerusalem Jews, they weren't real seekers of truth. These were legalists on a mission, theological hitmen. These were Pharisees with fangs. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity and they were hunting for some accusation to use against him. When they saw his disciples eating with unwashed hands, that was it. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 to 21, called for the priests to wash their hands before they came to the altar or offered a sacrifice. But over time, this was extrapolated out to all the Jews. Everyone was supposed to wash up before they performed any kind of ceremonial functions. As a matter of fact, even today, when you visit the Wailing Wall, the place where the Jews go and pray, Just outside the entrance to the wailing wall is a large sink and spigot. Jews are expected again to wash their hands before they pray. Not much has changed. But if the Bible didn't command this emphasis on hand washing, where did it originate? And Mark tells us it came from the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees had exalted their traditions above God's word. You see, the rabbis taught that in addition to the law, God gave Moses further instructions. And rather than record them, he passed them on by word of mouth. The rabbis believed that these traditions were the key to correctly interpreting the law. To some rabbis, the oral law was more important than the written law. Near the end of the 2nd century AD, later than Jesus The rabbis and scribes gathered up all these oral traditions. They recorded them and codified them in a book called the Mishnah. Verse 4 describes the Jewish obsession with these ceremonial washings. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers copper vessels, and couches. Now the Midrash has a whopping 35 pages on hand washing. Like I say, we like to complicate things, don't we? And they describe hand washing under all kinds of scenarios. Here's an example for you. This is what the Mishnah says. Take one and a half eggshells of water and pour it over your hands letting the water drip only to your wrists and no further. Then flip your hands over, pointing them downward, while yet another one and a half eggshells of water was poured over them. Finally, rub one right fist into your left palm, then your left fist into your right palm, and on and on it goes. You see, the Jews were expected not only to wash their hands before a meal, but before each course. They were obsessed with ceremonial hand-washing. And it took drastic measures to enforce their rules. One rabbi was actually excommunicated for eating bread before washing his hands. There was a rabbi imprisoned in Rome who almost died from dehydration because he used his daily ration of water for washing instead of drinking. It was that important to him. A rabbi named Eleazar wrote, He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to Jewish tradition has no share in the world to come. In other words, keeping their traditions was essential in their eyes to getting to heaven. And this is why it bugged them. It bugged the Jews that Jesus could have cared less for their ceremonies and their traditions. Well, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why have you been ignoring these traditions? But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus had two problems with their pharisaical hand scrubbing. First, their cleansing was outward rather than inward, physical rather than spiritual. So what if you clean up a body that's perishing and ignore the spirit that's dirty and defiled but it's going to live forever? Jesus quoted Isaiah. The Jews talked a lot about loving God, but their heart was far from him. His second beef with them is they passed off man-made commandments as doctrines of God. In Jesus' eyes, this was spiritual forgery. The Jews were counterfeiters. I wonder, though, if Jesus were here today, if he wouldn't have the same two problems with his church. You know, I grew up in a religious environment that was preoccupied with external purity. It wasn't Jewish, it was Baptist. But we worried about the same stuff. Not hand washing, but hair cutting and clothes wearing. Holiness was confined to abstinence. Don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or run with women who do. You did that and you pretty much had it together. They were into outward compliance, not passion for God. I've known people who were proud that they looked apart. The Yet they harbored prejudice in their heart toward people of another race. Folks who never would get drunk on alcohol, but got drunk on envy and pride. You see, Jesus said later that these people were like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly pretty, but full of dead men's bones inside, inwardly corrupt. You see, true holiness is more than a whitewash. It's a deep, clean. And these same people elevated man-made traditions equal to or even above God's Word. Note the Jews in verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You know, even today, church traditions can get mistaken For divine commands, dress codes, frequency of communion, styles of music, infant baptism, even the display of Christian symbols. All these things are traditions, not orders from God. Once we had a well-meaning usher, he asked a young man to take his hat off in a service one Sunday. I understood his thinking. Removing your hat is a traditional show of respect. You should be respectful when you come in. To the church. But what's our tradition isn't necessarily God's instruction. I believe that God was happy that the guy was just here. Our taboos might not be a problem for God. You see, Jesus was against passing off man's traditions as God's commandments, lest we misrepresent God. Well, in verse 10, Jesus gives an example of how the Jews were exalting tradition over God's word. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift from God. The word Corban means gift that you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jewish tradition said that what was given to God could it also be given to men. Of course, the scriptures taught, as Jesus pointed out, that adult children should respect their aging parents. But according to this tradition of a Corbin. If a child dedicated his wealth to God, called it Corbin, then he couldn't give it to his parents. So here comes his elderly parents over to his house. They're hungry. They're they're in need. And and he sees them coming. He sees them out in the driveway. And so he runs around inside his house and he starts dedicating everything to God. Goes into the bread box, makes sure all his food is dedicated to God. It's all Corbin. It's a gift to God. So when his parents come in, oh, he acts like he respects them, but he can't give them anything. Because he's frozen all his assets. The tradition was being used to break the law, not keep it. And this angered Jesus. This was just excusing their greed. In verse 14, when Jesus had called on all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Here Jesus offers another critique on Judaism. Under Jewish law, certain foods were unclean. It was a sin to consume them. Pork, bacon. Boy, it would be tough to be a Jew if it were me. But Jesus is saying that sin doesn't originate in what's consumed, but in what comes out of our heart, what flows from our heart. In other words, what is it that consumes us? It's not about what we consume. It's about what consumes us. It's about what comes out of our heart. What is our passion? What Jesus is saying is at the heart of the matter is the matter of our hearts. This This is what he's concerned about. A man lusts. Not because of the woman in the low-cut blouse, but the desire was already there in his heart. That's where the problem is. She just might have set it off. Don't blame your temper tantrum on the slow poke in the fast lane. He might have lit the fuse, but you explode because your heart was packed with TNT beforehand. Which reminds me of the little boy who asked his mom one day, Mommy, why do all the idiots and morons only come out when daddy drives? In other words, what's in your heart? That's what Jesus is concerned about. True righteousness flows from the inside out, not the outside in. That's why Christianity is not about what we can do for God, but about God's Spirit working in us. Verse 17, when Jesus had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? Under the law, pork was an unclean food, but bacon isn't our enemy. Slides down your digestive tract, it tastes pretty good. It gets eliminated. It might shorten your life, but it doesn't affect your eternity. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye. Ah. Look here. You ever got the evil eye? Yeah, you ever got the evil eye? Hey, when you get that kind of a look, you know there's something going on inside that person, don't you? There's something going on deeper. An evil eye is a result of evil brewing in the guy. Jesus continues his list. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Adultery, fornication, theft, deceit. This isn't the result of an opportunity that came looking for you. No, you were looking for the opportunity. It was in your heart ahead of time. And since the problem is within, that's where the solution begins. That's why God wants to change our hearts. God wants to change us from the inside out. The mouth speaks, the hands do, the feet go where the heart leads. That's the key. Verse 24, now from there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities on the coast of the Mediterranean. Understand, this was Gentile territory. Here, Jesus was seeking a break from the action, a respite from the crowds that were thronging him. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this. But I am certain that Jesus shut the blinds. And how do I know the house had blinds? Haven't you heard of Phoenician blinds? Took me a long time to come up with that. Of course, when the blinds, with the blinds shut, verse 24 tells us, he could not be hidden. Isn't that interesting? What did he tell them? He wanted no one to know it. He was there, but he could not be hidden. Don't you love that thought? Jesus couldn't be hidden. Jesus is the light of the world that can't be covered. He always shines. For a, young, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. Now, Jesus' season of solitude gets interrupted by a caring mother with a demon-possessed daughter. Well, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Matthew tells us that when she first approached Jesus, he answered her not a word. Apparently, Jesus wanted to see the persistence of her faith. His silence was a test Of the woman's faith. You know, often we misinterpret Jesus' silence in our lives. When Jesus is silent, it doesn't mean that he's not at home. It doesn't mean that he's busy. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It could be that he is testing the persistence of our faith. Notice again verse 26. She kept asking him to cast the demon out. Maybe Jesus was waiting to see if she would keep asking. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, at first glance, it sounds as if Jesus is being rude, that these, woman, these words are a rejection of the woman. He refers to the Jews as the children and to the Gentiles as the little dogs. The Jews are sitting at the table. The, Gentiles are the little dogs that pick up the scraps underneath the table. In Jewish cities, dogs were unclean animals. They were scavengers. The Jews didn't have dogs as pets. But the Gentiles kept little dogs around as household pets, and they would feed them with the table scraps. Now here Jesus is teaching a principle that's taught elsewhere in Scripture, in the New Testament. The gospel... And all of its blessings were intended for both Jews and Gentiles, but Jews first, then the Gentiles. Here, Jesus is restating the privileged status of the Jews. They get filled first, but that's not to exclude the Gentiles. And here he tests a Gentile's faith. Does this woman believe that there is enough food at God's table, enough grace and blessing For both Jew and Gentile, is there enough food, not just for the children, but for the little dogs under the table? Is there enough? He's testing her faith. And she answered and said to him, this is so beautiful. Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She knows she lacks the privileged status of a Jew. They were God's chosen people. But God's crumbs are better than the world's main entrees. And even without the pedigree, she trusts that there is enough of God's mercy to go around that she too will receive from the master's table. Verse 29, Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has come out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. And I would say, if the crumbs from God's table are these kinds of miracles, what amazing blessings has he put on the table for those of us kids who've been adopted into his family and who've been bought by the blood of Jesus. He has great things in store for us as well. Verse 31. Now again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf And had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. Now, his speech impediment was a result of his hearing deficiency. It's hard to learn to articulate words when you don't hear very well. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude, and catch this, put his fingers in his ears, and spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be open." Now what a strange procedure to affect a healing. Find somebody nearby. Tur- turn in and get in close proximity to the person nearby. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stick their- your fingers in their ears. <laughs> then I want you to spit on their tongue and touch their tongue. And then I want you to shout out a word with a lot of consonants. This was strange, man. Realize that Jesus healed people in different ways. At times, he would just speak the word and it was done. At other times, he would touch the person with his hands, the laying on of hands. We do that sometimes too. Once he smeared mud on a blind man's eyes and told him to go down and wash it off in the pool of Siloam. The point is, God's methods are as varied as the snowflakes. Just about the time you think our creative creator You figured him out, get ready, he's going to blow your mind. When the church tries to reduce God's power to a formula, that's when God finds another way to work. Here, though Jesus' methods sound strange, you can't argue with the results. Verse 35 reports, immediately, his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Kind of like a teenager. If you don't want them to do something, tell them not to. If you want them to do something, tell them not to. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And I love that phrase, don't you? He has done all things well. Well, that's what they were saying about Jesus. Jesus was never sloppy. Whatever he did, he did it with excellence. If it was worth doing, it was worth doing well. And guess what? This should be true of his followers. Whether it's you making a living or playing on the worship team or teaching Sunday school, if you want to be like Jesus, strive for excellence in all you do. Do all things well. Well, did you hear about the doctor who placed his overweight patient on a diet? He told this guy, he said, now, I want you to eat regularly for two days, then I want you to skip a day. Eat two days, then skip a day. I want you to repeat this pattern for two weeks. At your next visit, you'll be five pounds lighter. Well, when the man returned, he stepped on the scales. The doctor was stunned. The man had lost 20 pounds. The doctor asked him, he said, man, you've lost 20 pounds. Did you do it just by following my instructions? The guy nodded. He said, yes, but I thought I was going to drop dead every third day. The doctor said, well, did you get faint from hunger? The man answered, no, it wasn't from hunger. It was from all that skipping you told me to do. That's pretty funny. Well, in Mark chapter 8, we find a multitude of people That's weak and weary. They've become faint. Why? Because they've been skipping for three days. Skipping their food. The crowd had been so captivated by Jesus' teachings and his healings that they didn't bother to eat. They didn't want to miss out on his miracles. Verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. Because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Apparently there were some firefighters in the crowd since they came from afar. Afar? 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 Get it? Hey, spending time with Jesus was so thrilling that nobody wanted to leave and fetch some food. They were afraid of missing out on a miracle while they were away. Now, though, they're famished. Jesus is afraid they're going to pass out on the way home. They need a snack. Well, then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? The disciples, they look around. There's no grocery store, not even a Waffle House. Where are they going to find grub? Grub. For 4,000 families. We'll learn later the number was 4,000. And if you were with us in chapter 6, all this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus is about to feed 4,000 families with seven loaves and a few fish. Whereas a few days, maybe weeks earlier, he fed 5,000 families with five loaves and two fish. Now, there are skeptics who believe that this was really just one incident recorded twice, just some minor alterations. And the primary reason for suggesting this is the disciples' reaction. For if they had just seen Jesus work this miracle, why are they doubting now that he can do it again? And my answer to that, never underestimate the stupidity and the denseness of Jesus' disciples, (laughs) myself included. Isn't it true? Just because we see a miracle one day, that doesn't guarantee that we're going to believe God for a miracle the next day, even the same miracle. Why? Faith is never automatic. It's a choice we make to believe God despite our constantly changing circumstances. It's been said, faith is a daily deal. And understand, though the two miracles appear similar, their settings were very different. The feeding of the 5,000 occurred on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. You remember that was Jewish territory. While Mark chapter 7 verse 31 tells us that the feeding of the 4,000 took place on the eastern shore of the lake in the area of the Decapolis. Galilee was occupied by Jews while the 10 cities, remember Decapolis, it means 10 cities, while those 10 cities were populated by Gentiles. Hellenistic or Greek culture dominated the Decapolis. Judaism dominated the Galilee. You remember the herd of swine was on the eastern shore, the Decapolis, in Gentile land. You'd never see pigs on the Jewish side. They were on the Gentile side. Only two types of people lived in the Decapolis, lawless Gentiles and compromising Jews which explains why the disciples were reluctant to believe that Jesus wouldn't work another miracle of multiplication. He wasn't in the right place to do so in their minds. It was one thing for God to believe God would work a miracle for faithful Jews. It was another thing to believe that God would do the same for hog farmers and Roman collaborators. And this is the dilemma that's faced by a lot of church members. Sometimes we think that God blesses the faithful, the people with the spotless past. Oh, but but not the sordid people, not the people who've been forgiven of the sordid past. Not them. See, all God's miracles are done for folks who know they don't deserve them. All God's miracles are provoked by His grace, not our goodness. It doesn't matter what side of the lake you're on. It doesn't matter what side of the railroad tracks you come from. It's all about God's mercy. It's not about you, it's about God's grace. Verse 5. Now Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. Now notice, Jesus didn't distribute the bread himself. He gave it to the disciples and told them to pass it out. And this is how Jesus works today. We're his hands. We're his feet. It's our job to take the bread of life and distribute it to those who are hungry and needy. As we noted with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus blesses the bread. He gives the bread. But remember, before he gives it, what does he do with it? He breaks it. And this is what he does with us. Before we can be used, we have to be broken. We have to be broken of our pride, our self-sufficiency. He has to make us digestible to the people around us. He has to knock off the haughty edges. Make us humble people. It's amazing how throughout the Bible, God uses broken things. Gideon's broken jars, Mary's broken flask where she anointed his feet, the oil. Even our salvation comes through Jesus' broken body. Brokenness is a tool in God's tool chest. Nobody goes far with God who resists his brokenness. Notice verse 7. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he set, said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Here, the word translated baskets is spurus, which basically means a hamper, a big basket. In fact, this is the word used in Acts chapter 9, verse 25 when Paul was lured over the city walls of Damascus in a spurus, in a basket. Apparently, a spurus was a basket large enough to hold a grown man. When Jesus finished feeding the 4,000, there were enough leftovers to fill seven of these hamper-sized baskets. They had given Jesus just seven loaves. Now they get back seven hampers full, and they all have full stomachs which goes to prove you can never outgive Jesus. Never. Reminds me of Proverbs 11, verse 24. There is one who scatters yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. In essence, hoard it and you lose it. But if you give it to Jesus, you'll watch it grow. Jesus can turn our loaves into hampers full. Now, those who had eaten were about 4,000. Matthew 15 tells us that the 4,000 were men. Add women and kiddos, and Jesus probably fed at least 12,000 people. And he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Back across to the western shore they go. Verse 11. Then the Pharisees came They came out and they began to dispute with Jesus. Surprise, surprise. Seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. A definite sign of frustration with these Pharisees. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Jesus had already worked countless miracles. You'd think multiplying fish and bread, calming a storm, raising a little girl from the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. You'd think they'd be pretty good signs, wouldn't you? What are the signs that they need? Catch this. Sadly, some folks are nothing but spiritual ambulance chasers. They're not interested in faith. They are just sensationalists who just want to see miracles for miracle's sake. Here is the truth we need to realize. The only thing signs and miracles produce is the desire for more signs and miracles. That's it, friends. God's miracles are the product of our faith. They don't produce faith. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us what does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's studying God's word, dwelling on his promises. That's what causes your faith to grow. Well, verse 13 tells us, And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, throughout Scripture, leaven or yeast is a type of sin. Why is it a type of sin? Leaven corrupts by puffing up, by inflating, and so does sin. Sin pumps up our pride. And here in the Gospels, Jesus talked about three types of leaven. First was the leaven of the Pharisees. That was legalism. The Pharisees bound God's people to a strict adherence to the law of Moses. The leaven of the Sadducees was liberalism. The Sadducees compromised with the pagan world around them. And the leaven of Herod was political leverage. You see, the Herod sought political power. And Jesus saw legalism, liberalism, and political leverage as leaven, as sinful forces in the world. All three are corrupting influences on God's people. God's people should rely on love. Jesus wanted to talk about these factors when he brought up this subject of leaven. But the disciples, they were still thinking of the previous day's events, the multiplying of the bread. So verse 16, "...and they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread." Apparently, the disciples are thinking that Jesus is about to scold them for only packing a single loaf of bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? See, the miracles of Jesus were always intended to communicate spiritual truths. But the disciples, they continually fixated on the miracle itself. And they let its spiritual meaning sell over their heads. The lesson for us is don't waste God's miracles. Too often we enjoy God's blessing. We marvel at his deliverance. But then we miss out on what he's saying to us. He loves us. He's not through with us. He has a purpose for us. Like the roofer on top of the house, nailing on the shingles. Suddenly his feet slipped. His body was sliding down the pitch of the roof. He was headed for the edge. That's when he shouted, God, help me. Suddenly his pants caught on a nail, stopped his slide. That's when he turned to heaven and said, never mind, God, a nail just caught me. He missed the point, I think. Don't waste God's miracles. When he does something for us, when he delivers us or works in our lives, he's teaching us a lesson. Jesus said, And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven of the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. Now this should silence any doubts about there being two Miracles of multiplication. Jesus here describes two different events. And yet even if there had been five such events, it still doesn't mean that the disciples would have gotten the point. For thus we're told in verse 21, So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Then he came to Bethsaida. And they brought the Beseda's up on the north uh, Northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little town, a fishing village. And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now again, Jesus heals through some bizarre behavior. In the Gospels, Jesus opened the blind eyes of at least seven different people. In John 9, he healed a man by putting mud on his eyes. Here he spits on this man's eyes. In Mark 10, he heals blind Bartimaeus by just speaking a word. In other words, you can never put Jesus in a box. He works in different ways with different people. And this becomes a problem for us because we expect Jesus to work in everyone else the way he's worked in us. You realize this is how denominations get started. Rather than let God be God, we rally around our common experiences. And so you got the first church of the muddists and the assembly of the spittists and the first speakists over here. Actually, it's the same Savior, just using different methods. After Jesus spits in this man's eyes, we're told, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Now, obviously, this man was not born blind. He'd seen in the past since he describes the people he sees as walking trees. He goes from no sight to now gross shapes. He still lacks sharper definition. He lacks a refined vision, but but at least now he can see shapes. Then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Suddenly it's all high def. This is a vital account of a miracle since it illustrates a gradual healing. Most of Jesus' healings seemed to be complete and instantaneous, but not here. Jesus touches and prays for this man twice. Verse 25 tells us, Jesus put his hands on his eyes again. He did it twice. This is why it's important that we keep coming back to Jesus when we're seeking him to heal us. See, this man begins with no sight at all. Then he receives partial sight. Then finally he receives perfect sight. The blind man goes from no sight to partial sight to even perfect sight. As far as I'm concerned, that's out of sight. And this is a picture of our salvation, is it not? Before I knew Jesus, my spiritual eyes were blind to the things of God. Yet when I repented of my sin and trusted Jesus, He opened my eyes to His light. I could see, but not with the sharpest, clearest definition, but at least I could see. Since then, I've grown in my discernment. I keep coming back to Jesus and I can see things clearer. My sight continues to improve. In fact, the day is coming when I'll have perfect sight. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 tells us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. The Christian life is a sight-giving process. And this is where our faith gets tested, does it not? See, it's not faith if you can see all the details all at once. Today I know God. I'm no longer blind, but I still don't see everything clearly. Thus I need to trust him even when I can't see him. Verse 26. Then Jesus sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Again, Jesus didn't want him telling anyone because it would stir up a riot. Now Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. It's one of my favorite places to go in Israel. It's a beautiful place, up in the north, up in the uh, Lebanese mountains. They travel up to a retreat, in essence. They're getting away from it. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say? That I am. And this is the most strategic question you'll ever get asked. What do you believe about Jesus? In fact, he's asking us all that tonight. Who do you say that I am? Well, Peter passes this exam with an A. Plus. He gets it right. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. The coming Savior promised by the Hebrew prophets. Verse 30. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him. Again, Jesus' gag order was related to his concern that his popularity in Galilee would create problems that could circumvent his mission. The crowds could become a problem for him. Hey, soon his disciples would go and tell the world. But for the moment, they needed to keep his identity under wraps. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Now realize Jesus' trip to Caesarea Philippi, it marked a turning point in the ministry of Jesus and in the education of his disciples. In fact, he used this occasion to refocus the perspective of his disciples. Think of it this way. Up until now, it's been the the first semester of two semesters in the school of Jesus. Part one, the first semester, his life with the disciples up till now, it was about his identity. For the first semester of his ministry, he was teaching and showing his disciples who he was. I mean, who else can raise the dead and calm the storm and cast out demons and heal the sick and multiply fish and bread and walk on water? I mean, Jesus has been doing all these things to teach them who he was, his identity. He was the Messiah. But now he is going to shift gears with his men. He's going to change his focus from who he is to where he's going. Call this the second semester in the school of Jesus. His destiny. His identity, now his destiny. Until Caesarea Philippi, the focus was his identity. Now, to the cross, will be his destiny. You see, the Jews in general, even the disciples, they were convinced that the Messiah would come to reign and rule. But now Jesus presents a different vision of his mission. The path he's traveling leads to a cross before it leads to a crown to a gory death before a reign of glory, first to a tree, then to a throne, a grave, then to greatness. This is Jesus' focus now for the rest of his ministry. And Peter took Jesus aside. Oh, my. Oh, Peter. You're taking Jesus aside. You're giving him a little counsel. Actually, he began to rebuke him. On the one hand, we're floored with Peter's brashness that Peter would rebuke the master. But you got to think about this now from Peter's perspective. He's been on this miracle ride. He's so excited. The multitudes, man, they're in the palm of Jesus' hand. Momentum is on their side. Peter is thinking of coronation, not a crucifixion. Peter can't believe that Jesus is now shifting gears This seems like they're going backwards. This has to be a mistake. But when Jesus had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Peter's highest highs and his lowest lows take place just minutes apart. He gets an A for the first semester, and now he's flunking out of the second semester. He's getting a big, fat zero. He's sure of Jesus' identity. Peter knows who Jesus is, but he has no clue where he's going and why. You could say Peter thought he was the Pope, but he turned out to be a dope. For the rest of his time on earth, Jesus tries to teach his disciples that you get to the celebration, you get to the victory, you get to the salvation, you get to the coronation by traveling the path of the cross. This was true of Jesus, and it's also true of us. See, it's one thing for us to embrace Jesus' identity. It's quite another to embrace his destiny. This is what separates people today. Everybody wants the miracles, but who wants to take up their cross? And follow Jesus. If you really want to follow him, you need to know where he's going. Jesus teaches his disciples that there's not only a cross in his future, but there's one in their future also. Verse 34. For when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. Understand to deny yourself is not to deny your God-given talents or your abilities or even godly desires. Jesus is simply telling us to stop living for ourselves. Don't live for yourself. His glory, not ours, should be the goal. Don't live by yourself. We were made for fellowship with God and for fellowship with each other. And don't live in yourself. Lean on his strength, his wisdom, not your own. This is denying yourself. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And here is the paradox, the great paradox in the Christian life. See, life is like a glass of milk. It's a perishable commodity. Hold on to your life for too long, and it sours. It ruins. You know the only way to keep a glass of milk for a long time? Is to drink it. It's to consume it. And this is true with our lives. Live it for Jesus, and it will live on. But hold on to it for yourself, and it will spoil. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The world is not what it's cracked up to be, friends. Don't throw away your integrity for cheap thrills and moldy bread. Hey, what, why give up what lasts forever for what's going to leave you empty tomorrow? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Every believer needs to be willing to stand up and be counted. For if we stand up for Jesus, he will stand up for us. When the first representative signed the Declaration of Independence, he sprawled his signature across the page in large, in flowing letters. John Hancock said that he wanted to write his name so big that King George could read it without putting on his glasses. Hancock wanted the British monarch to know exactly where he stood Today, when you sign a document, people sometimes say, hey, put your John Hancock right here. It's a way of saying, by adding your signature, you're taking a stand. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. Take a stand for me on earth, then I'll stand for you in the life to come.